Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is Psalm 72. Hear God's word for us. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound, till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruits be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, let's take a moment. If we could just close our eyes and take a moment of silence, allowing what was just read, God's word, to just saturate us for just a moment, to calm our hearts from the various movings and stirrings within us, to present ourselves fully present to this moment by the power of the Spirit. Let's do that. God, we recognize that we're bringing a lot with us today, as there always is the case, as we show up in any place and any time. And we ask, Lord, that you would be with us in this time as we would recognize you speaking through your word, not just to a people in the past, but to us in the present, to anticipate your work in the future. We recognize that we have but such limited perspective We have the wonderful gift of your word that continues to expand our horizons, not just outwardly, but inwardly. May we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And may we have the posture of repentance and surrender that when your word challenges us, we freely release. When your word beckons us with encouragement, we stand with stronger legs. And as we look to one another, 
we ultimately understand we're looking to you as we serve. Thank you, God, for today, this moment, which is a gift. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> what's wonderful, if you've, you know, gone to a, uh, you know, a Christmas Santa exchange at work, or you have like a friend's exchange, or you've got like that family kind of moment where you're exchanging gifts, uh, Christmas gifts or Christmas presents are always a bit of a surprise, right? And sometimes they're a good surprise, and sometimes they're not that, right? Um, a, a good surprise would be an example of a gift that someone got you and you're like, oh my goodness, they didn't even ask me, but it seems like they know me. And you open this present. It's not something you would have ever gotten for yourself, but it fits you so well. And you feel so known. You feel so seen. You're excited to use, wear, uh, imbibe of whatever it is they, they, they bought you, right? As a way of token of your relationship and your intimacy. Now, a bad surprise is basically <laughs> what you see on any kid's face whenever he unwraps socks, right? Around Christmas, like... <laughs> Without fail, and even if they've been trained in compassion and within the human experiment, there, there is this dynamic where they look and they'll say, thank you, right? But in their eyes, you see hopelessness. Um, and that's a bad surprise. And whenever you're engaged with gift giving or gift receiving, there's a level of risk that comes with gifts. Now, when we come to Advent, here's what I'm trying to eventually land the plane towards. When we come to Advent, it's not meant to be a season of surprise. It's meant to be a season of anticipation. And there's a, dif a difference there. Advent in its very definition means the appearance of someone or something. And so when we come to the Advent season, yes, we look back in remembrance of the first Advent, the first appearance of God become flesh and the wonder and the glory of all of that, but not merely so we can look back at the good old days. It's instead meant to instill us, and throughout the history of the church, to instill a deep anticipation of his second advent, that he would come again, and that the same kind of king who came in the first century in a way that truly did surprise so many, and yet was perfectly in line with the scriptures, we come with a deeper anticipation of his coming again. And so when we come to this season of advent, which is not just the one day of Christmas and the gifts that we are giving, but this season, we come with a deeper reevaluation as to what are we ultimately anticipating in life? What are we longing for most deeply? Are we really so shook with the realities of the world that we long for the king to come back and fully bring his kingdom come? Or are we quite content with the one that we live in now? It becomes an awakening and a reevaluation, a repentance of Lord Jesus come. But the question that's kind of on the heels of this anticipation, the question that drives our everyday actions and our everyday hopes is ultimately what kind of king are we to expect? When it comes to anticipation, not being utterly surprised, but actually anticipating, what kind of king are we to expect? Now, there's a lot in life we don't know. There's a lot of questions in life, even when you walk with Jesus, that you're not going to get it answered, this side of heaven or maybe even into eternity. Sometimes we can say that once I get to heaven, all my, answer, all my questions will be answered. Maybe not. And maybe what's different is we'll be okay with more mystery. Who's to know? But what we don't have to live in mystery around 
and what God has gone through extraordinary energy to communicate and given us ample evidence is of the kind of king we can expect. And so today, as we look afresh at the promised king, the king that we long for, which this whole series, this Advent has been built around, that of the promised king, we are going today look at the king's character, that which is unchanging, that which is unmoving and consistent throughout history. And we have an extraordinary opportunity this morning as we come to this psalm because we have an opportunity to have a deeper, humble confidence when we're in the midst of difficulties. We have the opportunity when we know the king's character to cultivate a deeper endurance when we're going through trials. We have an opportunity to know a deeper joy (laughs) even amidst the great moments of our lives, all because of the kind of king that we are promised and his character. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 72. Now, if you haven't already, uh, I would deeply encourage you to pick up. We've got some journals back there on that table next to the Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab that too. We have a series that's guided you, a daily journey um, called The Form Dot Life, and it's in line with this series. And in it, friends, there is a place for you to really mark up. So this is what I did with Psalm 72, okay? Really mark up Psalm 72. There's prompts on how do we read the Psalms better, more thoughtfully? How do we meditate on them more thoroughly? Not just skim by them, right? But how are you wrestling through the Psalm? And how is that informing your own prayers that you're writing? In the midst of this too, there are songs that we've recorded across campuses There's even poor Bishop Hooper, if you're familiar with them as an artist. Every Monday, we have a psalm that they recorded here in our studio um, that's up. So, I mean, there's a lot of different resources as we seek to grow in our anticipation of the promised king. You can go to the form .life, not .life.com, all right, .life, and you can sign up there as well. But I encourage you to follow along, and actually, all of Psalm 72 is written out for you there. But as we come to the psalms, what's wonderful about the psalms is that they cover the gamut of human emotion. I mean, there's 150 overall, and they guide us into the valleys and the mountaintops and give us language for the the prayers, the poems, and the songs that we long to sing and the intimacy of our relationship and life with God. Now, today's psalm is of Solomon. That may mean it's about Solomon or it's from Solomon. And here's what we need to say, too, as we step into the Psalms, especially if you weren't with us last week. The Psalms are for all Christians, meaning no matter your ethnicity, no matter your nationality, no matter your history, these Psalms are also for us. But we must remember they were first for Israel, and we can't just skip past that fact. And we're going to circle back to the historical relevancy, because more than anything, especially when you get to Psalm 72, The picture it's painting is that of the ideal king. When we think about this promised king, it's painting a picture of the ideal king, the king that we pray for, the king that we long for. And really across all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we see the picture of one who's coming, not just to get us out of a tough spot every now and then, and then let us lead our life any which way we choose. No, but a king who wants to guide us into life and life abundant as he so designed all of his reign and all of his kingdom across all of creation to be experienced. And not just any king, but the king. 
The more you walk through the biblical narrative, and if you ever do those reading through the Bible in a year plans, you see afresh and afresh just the through lines of how this king is ultimately God himself who's coming for us. Now, that doesn't necessarily sit well with us in an anti-authoritarian culture who isn't familiar with a king who then becomes instilled and instituted, whether we then like them or not, we can't vote them out or expunge them. This becomes the king that reigns for all eternity, whether we like it or not. And of course, due to our mental frame within our democracy, as well as some of our experiences, we've seen that those who have extraordinary power more often than not use that for their own gain at the expense of those they reign over. And so when we hear that God is the king and that there's this promised king, this ideal king, the question then wells up, well, what of the ideal king? How does he fit within that? And specifically, what are we to expect when it comes to Jesus? So if you've turned with me in your Bibles to Psalm 72, let's read verses 1 through 4 again, and we'll begin our time together here. Give the king your justice, O God. And your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. What an extraordinary request. Remember, this is a prayer that would be true of those who have extraordinary power. What an extraordinary picture of the ideal king. So what are we to see here? We are to see first that when we come to anticipate our king, we are to see that our king shows up for the needy. You know, the mark of character is what you do, not just when no one's looking, but what you do for the ones to whom no one is looking at or looking after especially when you have authority over them. Every king wants to be prosperous, to make their nation great. But the truly great kings are the ones who look at the ones that no one else wants to look at and says, I will defend them. Even when there are others in my kingdom who want me to ignore them because they can take advantage of them, not me. And actually that oppressor over there, I will crush him. It's not all peacekeeping. Sometimes there's peacemaking which requires justice to be enacted. And so when it comes to a king, the true test of the character of a king and a ruler and someone in leadership is how they engage, care for the poor, the vulnerable, those whom the rest of society could easily take advantage of without recourse, right? And we know this in life. There are those who have deep wells of compassion, but very little authority. And yet they seek to bring about change. Those are the kinds of people who inspire us, aren't they? We look at them and we say, maybe that could be me. Now, there are those who have extraordinary authority, but no compassion. Those are the ones who enrage us. And we think to ourselves, how dare they with their responsibility ignore, squish, silence those who are in deep pain. But then there are those who are both, who have a deep well of compassion with an extraordinary level of authority, and so they seek not just the common good of all, but going to look for those that are often overlooked to see that they too are cared for. Those are the ones we want to give our hearts to, are they not? And so we see here in this king, 
someone who shows up for the needy, which becomes the litmus test that he will show up for everyone in his kingdom who aligns with his kingdom purposes. And so I ask you today, do you expect King Jesus to show up in your neediness? Do you expect that? Are you anticipating that? I know that I honestly think it can sound weird when you say that out loud for some, because you may think to yourself, I'm not that needy, right? And in one sense, you're right. When you look across the pages of Scripture, as we see here, there are different statuses in specific situations of the poor, vulnerable, and the oppressor. There are the oppressed and the oppressor. It's right there in the text. It actually shows up a lot across the biblical text. So in some cases, there are categories of the oppressed and the oppressor. And if you have authority and you are taking advantage of someone because you think that you're not going to experience the consequences of taking advantage, you should not expect Jesus to be supporting you. Jesus is against you in that endeavor. Beware. That's what we see here of a king. And not just your ideals, once again, his ideals. It comes from his word, what he has communicated as just and right. Not what you want to be right and what you wish were just, but what he has communicated to be so. And so if you find yourself against the disadvantaged, ignoring or furthering their oppression, beware, this king who loves you dearly will come after you. This is something we must be aware of. Simultaneously, Here's the truth. We're all in need. (laughs) Whether you're, and this is what's true, whether you're, have experienced oppression or you have been an oppressor or you don't think you fit easily in either of those categories, every human being comes with need because no one is a benefactor when it comes to God. Everybody comes recognizing we need something from him, not just now, not just once in the past, but always. And that's the posture we come with before God. And sometimes we can come and we can think, well, God, I, I, I get that you, you're there for the needy, but my needs are too big. I, I just, I can't imagine how you're going to get me out of this one. Or maybe, and maybe the opposite may be true, where you think, you know what, God, my needs are too small. You're just too busy. It's, I mean, and you feel shame, even mentioning, or even feeling like I can pray about this because it feels too small. Listen, friends, the reason a problem or an area of need feels too big or too small is because you're comparing it to other people's needs and not to the king who will meet you in those needs. Beware. That's not what we see displayed here. We find a king who shows up for the needy, no matter whether it's big or small from your perspective as you compare it to others. (laughs) I love the way that Mother Teresa writes, there's two kinds of poverty. We have the poverty of material. For example, in some places like in India, Ethiopia, and other places, which is where she served, right? Where the people are hungry for a loaf of bread, real hunger. But there is a much deeper, much greater hunger, and that is the hunger for love. And that terrible loneliness and being unwanted, unloved, being abandoned by everybody are you honest about your needs are you expecting jesus to show up with you there in the midst of your needs now i i I get that there's a pushback it feels pretty natural once again as we 
especially in our context, are very skeptical to those in authority making promises. The natural question that bubbles up is, well, what are they getting out of it, right? Like, what, what's the incentive here? What's the game, right? Like, what is a king going to get out of this? Why would Jesus want to do that for me? Why would he want to meet me there? And, and I get it. I really do. Like, we can go back 800 years before the Israelite kings and go to King Hammurabi of Babylon. And even there, he comes with wisdom and says, Shamash, his God, has entrusted me with justice. And part of the key elements of a kingly rule was actually preventing the strong from overpowering the weak. Now, why would that be wise? Well, if you are in power, if you are the king, and you are preventing the strong from overpowering the weak, but are enable, an enabling order, this allows the status quo to continue and enables you to remain in power as king longer. This is wisdom. In many ways, justice brings about a well-ordered society, which then institutes and supports those in leadership. There's wisdom. Juvenal, he was a poet. If we skip to the Roman times, uh, the Roman Empire. He was a poet who would often talk about the Caesars leveraging bread and circuses. What are these? Bread and circuses. Bread and circuses. This was in the midst of a highly disordered empire where the masses, a third at the most conservative numbers, were slaves in the Roman Empire. Very few experienced the benefits of, benefits, the benefits of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Very few did. So what could you do to instill order? You give just enough bread to all so they have just enough food in their stomach to not want to strike and give just enough circuses, enough distractions, enough entertainment to keep the people numb and to keep the structures going so that those who are in power may remain in power without too much pushback. This is a common tactic. You care for the poor just enough in order to maintain power. But what of the ideal king? What of Jesus? What's his motivation? What we come to find is a deeper and truer motivation. You see, Jesus does not see you as a charity case. We see that Jesus isn't throwing a massive event and how he's donating a whole new wing on the hospital in order to support his business you know, and building up some virtue posting and things along those lines to cultivate a new thread of clientele. Jesus isn't coming alongside to serve you so that he can get him more Instagram followers. That's not the motivation to cultivate and maintain his power. Instead, it has everything, and this is what's so wonderful, friends, and maybe this is what you're going to need to see, and we're going to see it. It has everything to do with how Jesus sees you. Look with me. Jump over to verses 12 through 14. Chapter 72 of the Psalms. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Precious. That word has the element in Hebrew of rarity. It's something of extreme value. You see, our king, what does he see when he sees the vulnerable and the needy? Our king sees the most needy as the most precious. This is why it has everything to do with how he sees you, not what he gets from you. 
Don't miss this. This is who the ideal king is. You know, there's one of three ways that our world views the needy. The world views the needy either as those worthy of nothing, worthy of everything, or worthy of what's left over. Worthy of nothing. The idea that it's all your fault if you would just change your life around, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. No, I'm not going to do anything for you. That's on you. Worthy of nothing. Worthy of everything. None of this is your fault. This is all, you're only a victim. You can't do anything to change it. How can I be more like you? Because you're more holy than everybody else. Or then thirdly, this seems like a real problem, but I just don't have the time for it. I sure hope somebody else does something. Those are the three dominant views on how the world views the needy. But when the world views the needy as worthless, Jesus sees the needy as precious. And look with me. He doesn't see them as worthy of everything or worthy of nothing or worthy of leftovers. He sees them as worthy of him. Look with me again here at our passage. He delivers the needy, the poor, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and needy. He saves the lives of the needy. He redeems their life. He sees them as precious in his sight. They're worthy of him. And all of him, his action, his emotion, the full-orbed nature of his rule directed toward the ones, the rest of the world. And it's not because he wants to look good, but it's because he is indeed good. You see, he sees the needy not as a problem to solve, but as people to love. And that's why this candle, the love candle, is so crucial. Because when God became flesh, we saw love incarnate. When we light this candle and we see the light of his love breaking in at his first advent, it cultivates a deep anticipation that as he's seated on his throne and when he comes again, he will come embodied in this love for us because he sees us as precious. Do you expect King Jesus to see you as precious? Is that what you expect? I mean, so much of our world is proving our worth. This is why people feel the need to fake it until they make it, because they need to fake that they're worthwhile for anybody to give them a chance until they can finally prove that they're worthwhile and then demand everybody give them a chance. Neither of those are great categories for living. And we feel like we're living life in a balance sheet just trying to get out of the red. Well, today I want you to rest that King Jesus, when you've got nothing but the bones barely covering your organs and the skin barely covering your bones, and you come prostrate before him with nothing but not even the energy to stand, he says you are precious. You don't have to bring any accomplishments. You don't have to bring any proclivities. You don't have to bring anything to prove Jesus already proved it enough when he came and he declared, you are worth it to come to us. Like that is. Dan Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, writes, his yoke is kind, speaking of Jesus, and his burden is light. That is, his yoke is a non-yoke and his burden is a non-burden. What helium does to a balloon Jesus' yoke does to his followers. I love that image. We are buoyed 
along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is is his very heart. It is what gets him out of the bed in the morning. Is that what you imagine? One of the deepest challenges for us as followers of Jesus is our imagination problem. We are consistently surprised by who Jesus shows up as because we don't anticipate or imagine who he actually is. So I want to invite you to just close your eyes for a moment. Take a deep breath. In this moment, imagine Jesus looking at you knowing everything that happened this weekend, this last week, this particular quarter at work, relational dynamics, your own personal struggles, the questions you've been asking yourself, the texts maybe you've been sending to others. (laughs) He knows it all. And he looks at you and there's a small tear that comes down his face and he says, you are precious worth it. I love you. No matter what you're bringing, it's like filthy rags, but you know what? I'll take it (laughs) and I'll hold you. And the rest of the world wants to turn away. I'm going to turn towards because that's who I am. you can't tell me that that's not someone you want to lead your life. You can't tell me that that's not someone you wish would lead the geopolitical dynamics of our world today. And to hear that, what a world. Now, this is, there is a part of this psalm just on pure human scale that feels really outlandish. It seems as if it only is speaking in hyperbole and is preparing us for a glorious letdown. And for that, I want to just give us a snapshot. Look with me at verses 15 through 17. The author of this poem, this song, this prayer writes, Long may he live, speaking of this king. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Here we find that the ideal king, the one we are to anticipate, is that our king shows up for the needy always and everywhere. It's gloriously universal and inclusive. Earlier, we saw in verse 8 that his kingdom goes from sea to sea. This is the psalmist's way of saying that it covers all the land that he can imagine. And then he starts naming off these different people groups and organizational groups around Israel. And all of them are included and they're bowing their knee to this king. It includes all people across all lands as far as his imagination can take him. And this is where we need to go back and remember its original context. Remember that this was a prayer that was made for Israel's kings. 
kings like David and Solomon and so on. And we see the language of this prayer. It's, it's a deep longing that they would be that ideal king. Long, we long, may he live. May gold of Sheba, may prayer be made. May there be abundance. May people blossom. May his name. All of these deep requests and longings represented here for the ideal king to show up. That his kingdom would go on into eternity, never ending, everlasting. And yet, when we look at Israel's kings, they're deeply disappointing. Even in the best cases. <laughs> Let's just look at the two people that are mentioned here. Verse 20, you see that David's prayers are ended. But then in the superscript where it says, of Solomon, we see David's son. Let's just look at the two of them for a second. David, right? anointed. He would take the throne from Saul. There's something so wonderful about the heart of David. I mean, most of the Psalms are attributed to him or about him. There's something glorious. But in the midst of his reign, there comes a point where he just stops showing up. And in the midst of him not showing up, he peers over his ledge and becomes a peeping Tom on this woman. And then they have an affair, which is mixed up with a whole bunch of power dynamics that are deeply uncomfortable. And then she gets pregnant. And to try to cover it up, he has her husband murdered. He's finally confronted. But it's a very messy ordeal. And then later on, you look at his dynamics with his kids. His kids are messed up, friends, because he is carrying some deeply dynamics, probably from his own childhood, into his parenting where he's distant. He's not involved. He has all these wives. And so he's got all these kids. And he's not deeply engaged in any of them. And to finally, one of his sons tried to take the throne from him. I mean, it's bloodshed, heartache, pain. Now let's go to Solomon. Oh, Solomon. What do you want, Solomon? Oh, give me wisdom that I might lead well, we see in the book of Kings. And God says, what a great request. And he starts off so well, friends, so well. And then, I mean, just the long and short of it, he has somewhere around a thousand wives, different statuses to be sure but he's dominated by lust. He chases the gods of the other nations. He finally becomes a pharaoh of his own making, taxing his people to the brink of exhaustion. That finally, when his son does inherit the kingdom, Rehoboam wasn't all that bad. He was a lot like Solomon in his old age. And when Solomon's like, you lead, Rehoboam's like, like my dad did. And they're like, no more. Solomon couldn't stay consistent. So even in the best of kings, friends, we see utter failures to be able to go the distance in their own lifetimes. And we feel this deep longing that there's got to be someone. There's got to be someone that God can bring who has his justice, that has his righteousness. And then you get to verse 20 and it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse are ended. Now, when you read across the Psalter, there's actually five books within these 150 Psalms. Many believe that they were all written and collected. So just because it says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse are ended here, doesn't mean that the Psalms later that are attributed to David or about David aren't necessarily from David. That's another little conversation for another day. But what we are to see here is that eventually, not only David's prayers end, but he ends. And yes, it's wonderful that this is a psalm or a song of Solomon, his son. So the promise that God made to David that his children, his throne will always be occupied. You see the very fulfillment of that right here is that David, your son Solomon, yes, let's pray the same things for them. And you begin to see the generational lines continuing out. But both David and Solomon are failures if we're honest about their dynamics. And across the whole of the Old Testament, there's just this anticipation for a future king. 
which actually I've compared, I've done some comparisons along the way to ancient Near Eastern literature that we know of. This is actually utterly unique. This is something that the Israelites, that God entrusting to them is utterly unique across history. All of the prayers like this were anchored specifically for the one king who's ruling in that particular time period. Hebrews had a framework of a progression of history that actually God would bring about his promises and that there is a hopeful future and that there is a king coming. There's this ratcheting up throughout the Old Testament for one that, yes, shows some hints alongside of the human beings that are ruling along the way, but no one who truly measures up such that you finally begin to see how life-altering the words are to, to Mary in Luke chapter 1. Verse 30, look with me there if you have your Bibles. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne, listen to this, of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. To hear this, this is the longing of God's people throughout history. And now he's come. He's come with love and compassion for the needy, for you and for me. So it shouldn't surprise us when we look across Luke, he begins to tease this out that Jesus is indeed our king. And the kind of king he shows, he comes with extraordinary empathy because he's born into a house of poverty. When his parents go to the temple, they bring the turtle doves for sacrifice, which is, if you know your Torah, your Hebrew scriptures, you know that that means that they were of poverty because they couldn't afford a lamb. And then they had to run as a refugee family. Jesus knew the experience of the needy. Then we come to see in Luke chapter four, when he goes to proclaim his own personal mission statement, it's what? To bring good news to the poor. Then when you go to look throughout his life, it's always the outcasts who are around Jesus. The ones that are discarded due to physical ailments or thinking that their problems are too big. And then eventually deeply reveals that it is for all people, not just the Jewish people, but yes, for all people, including the Gentiles. This is why I love, and this was the song that we studied in the form.life Yesterday, if you're journeying along with us, the ho oh holy night, it's a verse we rarely sing. It's verse into verse two, into chorus two. We read, the king of kings lay thus in lowly manger in all our trials born to be our friend. He knows our need to our weakness. He is no stranger. Behold your king before him lowly bend. So what do we do? I'm gonna give us two quick things to help us move from surprise to anticipation. From surprise that this is our king to anticipating his return and living in light of that now. Number one, praise King Jesus's character. Praise Jesus, King Jesus's character. Listen, we may feel, and even I was talking with my kids this week, your feelings are real. You don't have to shut down your feelings. Ignoring your feelings is setting is like a recipe for disaster. Be aware of your feelings. You may feel forgotten, but never forget who Jesus is. You can be honest that you feel forgotten, but don't forget who Jesus has revealed himself to be. 
We may not have all the evidence about how his plan will work out, but we have plenty of evidence, ample evidence, as to the person who's working that plan out. We are not given certainty or always guaranteed comfort, but we are given Jesus, and he walks with us in the mystery and the uncertainty and, and beckons us to follow him in the midst of discomfort. So praise King Jesus' character. Why? I love what Spurgeon writes. He says, We see on the shore of time the wrecks of the Caesars, the relics of the Mughals, and the last remnants of the Ottomans, Charlemagne, Maximilian, Napoleon, how they flit like shadows before us. They were and are not, but Jesus forever is. So yes, we may be surprised by his clockwork. We may not like his timing. We may be surprised by his conventions. I wish he'd have done it this way. But we can never be surprised by his character. He's revealed who he is. So anticipate good. Praise King Jesus' character even when you have cause to question. And then secondly, pursue King Jesus' convictions. Anticipating his return doesn't mean we hold back in passivity. Even when justice feels like it's one step forward and two steps back, even when righteousness, according to God's word, has gone out of vogue, even when the world calls perilous the ones Jesus calls precious, we stand with him and we work towards his kingdom purposes until his kingdom has fully come. I love the way that Dakota Dietz, he's our pastoral resident over at the Brookside campus who wrote a poem around Love this time of year. He ends the poem this way. Beloved, hear the bells this Christmas day when the king's justice seems far away. Gather, pray, and stoke love's fire. Blessed be his glorious name. And I want to end with this story. Rembrandt, um, many of you may know the, the painter. When he was older and later in years, a lot of his paintings actually didn't begin with him. He had a school of apprentices, and what they would do is they would begin the painting, and they would bring it to Rembrandt, and then he would add some finishing touches. Now, over the time, it's natural for anybody who's an apprentice of anyone to want to bring something, and finally, you know, that master to say, I don't need to touch this at all. You've captured me perfectly. But the orneriness and dynamics of that is that the best of apprentices would sometimes bring what they thought was a horrible work. And then Rembrandt would say, that's great, and just add like two small things. And then they would bring maybe their best work, and they would say, surely this is the one, and he would have to totally rework it. And then the worst of apprentices would bring what they thought was the worst of work, and then Rembrandt would say, oh, only one or two touches. And they would bring maybe what they hoped would be something close to more his standards, and he would have to completely rework it. So eventually they said, well, why do we do this? <laughs> you're always reworking. We never really seem to understand what it is you're shooting for. Why do we keep doing this? His response was fascinating. He said, I've been at this a long time, and you may not understand it, but I would rather you try than just slop around. <laughs> and this actually helps my work you're going to have to trust me. Isn't that how we feel sometimes when we're going about the purposes and the conventions and the convictions of our King Jesus? We feel like we're sloppily getting along, but Jesus would rather us be in the stream of his purposes but, but than sitting on the sidelines waiting for him to do everything. He's working through you. 
To anticipate that king means to join him in his work of justice and righteousness. Such that we don't have to come with this anxious relationship with God, curious as to what will mean when he shows up. Instead, we can rest in confidence. Such that, in the same way we come to Christmas, we can know maybe not exactly what's in the box, but we know it's good. We know he knows us better than we know ourselves, and he loves us better than we love ourselves. And both of those two in tandem we know that at what, however the plan works out, he's got us. And so we can trust in his character, join him in his work, and anticipate him with confidence. Will you expect him? Maybe that requires repentance. Maybe that requires praise. Maybe that requires resting. And in all of it, may you know that Jesus sees you as precious. Let's pray. And I'm actually going to pray a prayer out of, it's a daily prayer journal I use from John Bailey. <laughs> that I just thought really captured it. It was on the 29th day. So it's a 31-day kind of morning and evening prayer. I want to end our time with this. Almighty and most merciful Father, your power and love eternally work together for the protection of your children. Give us grace today to put our trust in you. O Father, we pray for faith to believe that you rule the world in truth, justice, and love. For faith to believe that if we seek first your kingdom and righteousness, you will provide for our needs. For faith not to be anxious about tomorrow, but to believe that the love you have given us in the past will continue into the future. For faith to see your loving purposes unfold in all that is happening in our time. For faith to be calm and brave in the face of any dangers we may meet while doing our duty. For faith to believe in the power of your love to melt our hard hearts and totally remove our sin. For faith to put our own trust in love rather than in force when other people harden their hearts against us. For faith to believe in the ultimate victory of your Holy Spirit over disease and death and all the powers of darkness. For faith to learn from any sufferings that you call me to endure. For faith to leave in your hands the welfare of all our dear loved ones. O oh Lord, all our ancestors, we're justified in their trust in you. Rid our hearts of all pointless anxieties and paralyzing fears. Give us a cheerful and buoyant spirit and peace in doing your will. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen.